All right, everybody, it is Isaiah time. Isaiah chapter 7 is where we are. Isaiah chapter 7. Nice to see everybody tonight. I don't normally dress this fancy for you guys. I was at a, I had a funeral earlier today, and I didn't go home to change, so that's why I'm wearing the tie um, and everything else. Uh, Isaiah chapter 7. We're going to begin in verse 1, which... Um, as we'll see at the very beginning, it takes place a little bit of time having passed. At the opening of the verse, it came to pass, which is a Hebrew way of saying, and then a little bit of time passed from chapter 6, where we were last week. So chapter 6, if you recall, uh, was Isaiah's big prophecy, uh, sorry, not prophecy, vision, Isaiah's big vision that he saw from God, where he was given his commission to preach. He was shown this amazing spectacle of the throne of God, which was almost like the interior of the temple, but in a grander, more remarkable, apocalyptic kind of way. And then there, where it should have been the Ark of the Covenant, instead was the actual throne of God, with, the, with God sitting on it and declaring Isaiah and his need to go preach uh, to the people of Judah. In fact, he asked for volunteers, and Isaiah volunteers. So, that's the end of the chapter. In fact, the chapter ends with God telling the prophet, okay, go preach. Here's your message. You people aren't going to listen to this, but your message is that if you repent and turn to God, you'll be saved. If you don't, you'll be destroyed. Uh, but you're not going to listen. This is all what he's supposed to tell them. But you're not going to listen because your hearts are hard and your ears are heavy and you don't care anything about God anymore. That's the message. Now go preach it, buddy. Good luck. That's it. That's how the chapter ends. You come to chapter 7, look at verse 1. It came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramalia, king of Israel, went up toward Jerusalem to war against it, but could not prevail against it. So verse 1 basically just sets the stage. Now, Isaiah chapter 7 is very famous for the prophecy of the Messiah to come, Emmanuel, the one born of a virgin. That's smack in the middle of the chapter, basically. We have to build up to that. We have to appreciate the why. Why is that prophecy here? What was the purpose of it beyond just giving a giant road marker and, and for those reading your Bible cover to cover for the Messiah to come? What, what's, what's, what is it service in the context of Isaiah, particularly with Isaiah and the king of Judah, which at this time now is King Ahaz? And so verse 1 kind of just sets the stage. Let's understand where we are, when we are, and so forth. Um, it came to pass, so a little time after, about five years in fact, after chapter 6, that Ahaz is now on the throne. Ahaz is the son of Jotham, who is the son of Uzziah. Uzziah was the king for most of the first part of Isaiah that we've been studying. Chapters 1 through 6 was King Uzziah. Uzziah and Jotham were co-regents. They reigned around, uh, overlapping each other. And then now we've come to the time of King Ahaz. King Jotham was faithful and good and righteous before God. With Judah, it was a crapshoot. Israel, they were all terrible. With Judah, every now and then you get a good one. Um, and he was one of the good ones, Jotham was. That's Second Kings 15. But now Ahaz has come to the throne. Not so good. We read Second Kings 16 if you want more information there. He's going to reign for 16 years. And his period of time as king is going to be mostly filled with the nation falling back into idolatry and back into paganism and rejecting God. There was this cycle that you get with the kings of Judah. The good ones would be like, well, we've got to get all these idols out of here. And they'd get rid of all the idols. They'd take the people back to God, and everything would be great and prosperous. Then he'd die, and his son would take over. And he would be like, well, let's get all these idols back in here. Let's try something new. And then God would get angry, and the people would suffer. And then he'd die. The cycle would just go on. 
And it wasn't always a one, then the other, then the other, then the other. Sometimes you get two or three bad, then a good one would pop up, and then two or three bad, and so forth. But now we've entered a period where a good one has died and a bad one has taken over, and we're going to see how that affects the relationship between God, his prophet, and um, the kingdom through the king. Let's also understand some of the uh, geopolitical goings-on of this period of time. In fact, that's what you get in verse 1. Notice what it says there, kind of in the middle of the verse, that in the days of King Ahaz, Rezin the king of Syria, and Pekah the son of Ramalia, Pekah the king of Israel, went up toward Jerusalem to war against it and could not prevail against it. Now, I've very crudely given you your map. It looks beautiful. It's perfect. makes perfect sense. Mediterranean Sea, Egypt, uh, Red Sea, um, Saudi Arabia, again, not to scale, and then you've got the rest of the world, all right? Because it's a circle, so it goes around the rest of the world. So your red blobs are your various kingdoms of relevance. Judah, here. You've got Dead Sea, Sea of Galilee, um, Jordan River, here. So Judah, here. Um, uh, Israel, kingdom of Israel, which in this text is going to be called Ephraim. Because if you take the 12 tribes and you lop off Judah and Benjamin, and that's the kingdom of Judah, you've got 10 left over. The first most northernmost of them is the kingdom of Ephraim. And they kind of became the de facto leader of them. So Ephraim, Israel. So Judah here, Ephraim here, Syria here, Assyria here, and I didn't drive the scale. Really, Assyria should stretch over the Tigris and Euphrates, which are what these lines are. This is the Persian Gulf. So the uh, uh, blue uh, X's, uh, Nineveh, capital of Assyria, uh, Damascus, capital of Syria, uh, Samaria, capital of Israel, and Jerusalem, capital of Judah. All right, so there's your map. Uh, now, You've got Syria and Israel combining forces originally not to fight Judah. That wasn't the idea to start with. They combine forces for the reason that most kingdoms team up, which is to stop a bigger threat, which Judah is not, but which Assyria is. And around this time, Tiglath-Pileser has come to the throne of uh, Assyria, and he has started globally expanding his empire, and he is greatly threatening his kingdoms to the south, which is Syria and Israel. So they've teamed up. Well, they originally asked King Jotham to join with us. Let's have a, just a, you know, a triumvirate. Let's, the three of us come together, and maybe we could withstand Assyria. But Jotham was all like, no, I trust God. God will take care of me. Well, you can imagine how that would anger them. Well, Jotham's dead. Now Ahaz is on the throne. The problem with Ahaz is he also rejects an offer to form an alliance with Israel and Syria, but not because he wants to trust God, but because he says, I'm going to form an alliance with Egypt which you can just imagine what that would do to God, since he's like, I got you out of that land. What are you doing? But he doesn't want to trust God. Ahaz wants to trust Egypt, and that angers the Syrio-Israeli alliance, and so they decide to invade. And so they attack, they attempt to take Judah, and especially Jerusalem, and are rebuffed. They fail. Which should have been a great indicator that God is still with us, that God still wants to protect us, that God's still on our side, has the opposite effect. The invasion and, in fact, the kidnapping of the king of Israel, or Judah, the king of Judah, Ahaz, the kidnapping of him for a time, nearly his death before he's rescued, has a, a profound negative impact on Ahaz. He starts to say, more than ever do we need this alliance with Egypt, because look at all the threats we've got. He should have said, man, it's so great that God rescued us, we need to turn to him more, but that never even that thought crosses uh, his mind. So we're at about 734 B.C. That's all that's been going on. That's the environment in which Isaiah, having gotten this prophecy to go preach, has to step into. If he had gotten, or vision, if he had gotten this vision 
like 10 years earlier, he would have stepped into a much different environment. He would have had a king more receptive. He would have had a, a group of, of Judeans more likely to reject their idols and put away all that stuff and follow the lead of a godly king and a godly prophet. But now they're in, Isaiah stepped into a, a difficult time and he's got to convince a king and his people that you've got to trust God when everything around them is like, if I, if I just take my hand off the wheel for one second, this thing's going to careen. And Isaiah's message is basically, you've got to let Jesus take the wheel, basically. All right, verse 2. And it was told the house of David, saying, Syria is confederate with Ephraim. And his heart was moved, that's the king of Ahaz, King Ahaz, his heart was moved, and the heart of his people, as the trees of the wood are moved with the wind. Now, my Bible, if you go back to 7-2, says, it was told the house of David, that's a slang for Judah, especially the, uh, the, the royal family. It was told to the king, Syria is confederate with Ephraim. My Bible says confederate. What does your Bible say? Is in league with Ephraim. In league with? Same thing there? Yeah. <clears throat> same deployed. thing. Huh? Are deployed. Are deployed. Okay. It literally, in the Hebrew, it literally means settle down with. So these armies have marched into here, and it's not war. They're teaming up, and they're going to continue south. And sure enough, they're going to attack us is the idea. We're in danger here. And upon hearing that news that another wave is coming and the attempt to take uh, Jerusalem is coming, uh, Ahaz's heart and the heart of his people, because we tend to follow the lead of our leader, um, it says in my Bible, swayed like trees shaking in the wind. This is not a... A stout person. This is not a person who is resolute. This is not a confident person. Ahaz is the opposite of confident. You can read Second Chronicles 28 if you want additional information about this attack by Israel and Syria against Judah. But let's keep the focus from Isaiah's perspective. Look at verse 3. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go forth now to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool in the highway of the fuller's field. So in the midst of all of this um, uncertainty and panic and worry and potential invasion and war, Isaiah the prophet is, go, is, is sent to go to preach to and teach to um, King Ahaz. But he's particularly supposed to take his son. Now he's going to have another son introduced to you in chapter 8, uh, Maharal or Sheshbaz. It's a great name. It's going to be fun to say many times in chapter 8. But here he takes <laughs> Shir Jashub. One thing you're going to get out of this are names have meaning. Shear Jashub, his son that he's going to take with him, has a name that means the remnant shall return. Now that is the name I can only assume God told him to name his child, his son. Because it is a, makes him a walking prophecy. As we've read for the first five chapters of, his, of uh, Isaiah, you people are going to go into captivity. You're going to be exiled. But you're going to come back. Who's going to come back? The faithful, the saved, the, the select, the remnant. Those who are staying true to God are going to go into captivity and come out of captivity. The rest who aren't true to God are going to go into captivity, and that's the end. But the remnant shall return. And now Shear Jashub, his entire existence is a walking monument to that reality, that prophecy that Isaiah already spent five chapters talking about. So you two go and meet him there in Jerusalem and tell them the good news. Verse 4. And it is good news. The good news is, I will take care of you. But it's conditional if you turn to me. So go tell them. Verse 4. And say to him, Isaiah, say to the king, Take heed and be quiet. Fear not, neither be faint-hearted. For the two tails of these smoking firebrands, for the, uh, for the fierce anger of resin with Syria, 
and of the son of Romalia. Um, God's message to this cowardly king is basically, you need to act like a man. You need to straighten up, stop whimpering, stop whining, stop crying, stop saying, woe is me, assume the worst. None of that. We don't need any spaghetti-spined rulers. You need to, first of all, he says in the list, take heed, which is, shh, pay attention. It's going to be okay. In fact, the, the very next thing he's going to tell him when Isaiah actually tells him take heed is take heed. Listen carefully. They're coming. You're going to be invaded. Accept that. Now let's move on. Freaking out about it isn't going to help. Take heed. Be quiet is what the King James says next. What does your Bible say? Mine says be careful and be quiet. Be careful and be quiet. Anybody else have a different one? It means stand firm. Don't be wobbly. I don't know why it's translated to be quiet, but that's what it means. It means don't be wobbly. If there's a best, if there's a visual that best explains and encapsulates Ahaz, it's of a wobbly man. That's why he's previously talked about, like a tree that's swaying in the wind. This person who doesn't have God as his compass, and so he's just flinging from and flighting from one panic to the next. Next, very naturally, he says, fear not. Stop being cowardly in your thoughts. Neither be faint-hearted. Stop being cowardly in your actions. He calls the threat, God does at the end of the verse, Rezin, the leader of Syria, and Pekah, the king of Israel, son of Ramalia. And he says that they are just smoking firebrands. What does your Bible say? Two smoldering stumps of firebrand. Anybody else have anything different? He says, they, from a distance, you see smoke, you think fire, you're, you're worried about the danger. When you get up close to it, you realize it's just two little sticks that are, that are scorched. You know, yeah, it's producing some smoke, but I mean, it's, it's, it's done, you know. But from a distance, you see smoke, you worry, you, you assume the worst. But when you get up to it, it's just a couple of burning sticks. It's not a big deal. You can, and it's done. And that's how God views the danger that Syria and Israel are posing to Judah. Judah is seeing it as this two whole kingdoms are coming against us, and behind them is the lion, Assyria, just waiting to pick the pieces of the bones of what's left over. I got everybody around me, enemies all left and right. And God says, eh, it just, just sticks. It's not a big deal. That's Syria. That's Israel. But Ahaz doesn't want to see it. Verse 5 Because Syria, Ephraim, and the son of Ramalia have taken counsel against you, pay attention, listen. They have made an alliance. They're coming for you. And they have said, listen, you're going to want to freak out when I tell you this. They're teaming up against you. But God has already heard all their plans. God can read minds. God can listen with excellent hearing. He knows everything they've already planned. So imagine if you had on your side, King Ahaz, a spy who could tell you exactly what the other king is planning. And you've got that in God. And you're looking for Egypt to help you. And God says, through Isaiah, he's going to tell them, here's what they're planning. Verse 6, they're saying to each other, let's go up against Judah. And the King James says, vex it. And let us make a breach therein for us and set a king in the midst of it, even the son of Tabeel. Let's go up against Judah. We had that in verse 1. And vex it. Literally, let's clip it or prune it. Let's trim it. Let's, let's cut our way into it. And put a breach, gash it open. Let's burrow in ourselves so that we can remove the proper king of Judah and install a puppet king. This is just standard operating procedure throughout world history. You study world history and you study the rise and falls of kingdoms when 
their attack. It, it rarely ever happens like when you play Age of Empires or Warcraft or something. You don't just completely demolish and destroy the entire kingdom. What you do is you get enough of a defeat of them till they surrender. Then you put in a puppet king who will continue to rule over that land and then pay you a bunch of taxes, which is exactly what Babylon's going to do to Judah much later in time, 200 years later. He's going to subdue and submit Zerubbabel. He's going to subdue and submit the, the king. Is it Zerubbabel? Whoever the king is. I feel like there's a Z there. Zedekiah. He's going to subdue and submit the king and force him to be a vassal to him and whatever is left behind of the kingdom, pay him taxes all the time and pay him tribute all the time. Well, that's exactly what they're planning to do. They're going to install this guy, the son of Tamiel. Who is that? Unfortunately, there's very little known about who this person is. He's thought to be a Syrian. And I think I read somewhere because of the his name and the etymology of his name that he was Syrian. But honestly... All these names are all basically the same. They, they all come from the same, you know, root. So I don't know if that's it. But whoever this guy is, he's not local. He's not um, uh, royal. He doesn't have a claim to the throne. They're going to install him as a puppet to essentially legitimize their control, what they hope to be their control, over the kingdom of Judah. Now keep in mind, all of this is what they're worried about. And again, you have this humongous empire that's not even as big as I drew it on the map that is looming, and right now, not doing much. It's just kind of sitting there, and you're wondering, you know, at some point, they're going to make their move, and it's not going to be pretty. But we're panicking and freaking out about these two little kingdoms threatening this other little kingdom, when, as we studied in Daniel, who is ultimately in control of all these kingdoms? The one that the king of Judah doesn't want anything to do with. The one God who's in control of the whole chessboard. He's worried about a pawn and maybe a bishop. And there's a queen looming large, and there's the God who put the pieces on the board that's just saying, I can help you win. And then he has like, yeah, but I'll trust this rook over here. Maybe that'll even the odds. That's chess metaphors. I don't know if it works for you guys, but that works for me. <laughs> Verse 7. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand, neither shall it come to pass. I have been in their meetings. I have heard their plans. They are not going to succeed. Not just because they're incompetent, not because they're not good at their jobs, because their armies aren't strong. Under ordinary circumstances, they probably could just wipe the floor with you. But I, God says, am not going to let it happen. Now, unspoken in that promise is because I want Assyria to come in and invade, and I will rebuff them. We'll get that at the end of the first half of Isaiah, chapter 39. And because ultimately, I want Babylon to come in and take you into exile as punishment for your crimes. So I've got a bigger plan, so I'm not going to let them do it, because I've got other fish who are going to fry you. That metaphor went all kinds of backwards, but it doesn't matter. You got what I'm saying? So, but that doesn't matter right now. That doesn't matter. What matters is God is giving them the assurance that if you're worried about these two, don't worry. I've got it under control. But you've got to trust me that I'll take care of you. It shall not stand. It will not be accomplished. It shall not come to pass. It will not come to existence. That's the promise. Verse 8, for the head of Syria is Damascus, there's your capital, the head of Damascus is Rezin, there's your king, and within three score and five years, how long is that in non-Abraham Lincoln terms? Within 65 years shall Ephraim be broken, so it don't even be a people anymore. This is very specific, clear prophecy of future events. They are presently facing this great threat, but God says don't worry. I know exactly when they're going to go down within 65 years. And in fact, 65 years later, 669 B.C., 
They're going to invade. They're going to be driven back. Assyria is going to come in and take this weakened uh, Israeli Syrian alliance and just say, hey, look, bones to pick. And he's going to just uh, uh, take them apart. Um, so Esar Hayden is the ruler of Assyria by 669. He's going to come in. And he's going to conquer Israel and Syria. So God's sinner is saying to you, don't worry about them. Trust in me, and I can help you weather the storm. And then eventually, Assyria is going to come in and take care of them for you. Verse 9. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria. There's your king. Sorry, there's your capital. And the head of Samaria is Ramalia's son. There's your king. And if you will not believe, you will not be established. If you don't trust that I can take care of you, you will not be taken care of. That's just the most simple way God could ever put that. How does your Bible phrase it? In the end of verse 9 in particular. If you're not firm in the faith, you will not be firm at all. Oh, that's really poetic. What translation is that? ESV. If you're not firm in your faith, you'll not be firm at all. Literally, it's if you're not uh, established, you will not be held up. If you're not supported, you'll fall down. It's, it's just a simple cause and effect thing. I can, I can um, secure your foundation, or you can keep building a house on sand. What's it going to be? Now we come to the good stuff. Any comments or questions for the first nine verses? All right. Verse 10. Moreover, the Lord spoke again unto Ahaz. This is through the prophet Isaiah saying. So he says all that. All right. That verses 1 through 9 is the background to the, the part of the chapter everyone knows about, which is what we're getting into now. Verses 1 through 9. They're coming to get you, but I can take care of you. But God and Isaiah through him, God through Isaiah, can see on the face of the king, you don't believe me. Probably why he just said in the previous verse, if you don't believe, it's not going to happen. But he can see the doubt on his face. He can see the distrust. He can see the, the faithlessness on the face of the king uh, Ahaz. And so God says to him, verse 11, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Ask it either in depth or in height above. Ask God for a, my Bible says, sign. Is that what your Bible says? Everyone's Bible says, ask God for a divinely appointed signal or omen or marker or pointer. Ask God for something that will indicate something grand. Well, if the context is, I'm worried I'm going to be blown up, ask God for proof that you're not going to be blown up. Ask God for proof that this is not going to be the end of you, King Ahaz of Judah. God is so determined to show this faithless person, that he ought to have faith in him. That he says to him something that I don't think, unless I missed it, I've ever heard God say anywhere else in the Bible, which is, you ask me for a sign. Just ask me, and I'll give you one. Now, God has been asked for a sign. Again, there may be other times he's done it, and I've just forgotten. But I know there have been many times when God has been asked for a sign, and God is either obliged or refused. And when he's obliged, he had good reason. When he's refused, he's always got good reason. But this is one of those, if not the only time, when God has said, I am inviting you to ask me to show you something supernatural just to show you that I'm on your side. And I don't know why a moment from Touched by an Angel is in my mind. But my mother used to watch that stupid show when I was growing up. And I spent so much time in the kitchen rummaging for food at like 7.30 on a Sunday night that it's just in osmosis. It's just in my brain. But I specifically recall one time when one of those angels was in a car with somebody who didn't believe they were in a car with an angel, and the guy was like, prove it, and she made the windshield wipers go back and forth. You're not going to get that from God, okay? I don't care what channel you're watching. That's not how it works. 
But this is one of those times where God says, I will show you something. I will provide you something that will prove to you that I'm on your side. That if I promise they'll be destroyed, then you can trust me. Again, what's the whole point of this prophecy for, for Ahaz? It's not so Ahaz can have a greater appreciation for the virgin birth. That's not the point. Ahaz doesn't care at all about a virgin birth 2,000 or 700 years later. Ahaz just doesn't want to die in a few years. So Ahaz needs a sign that will show him that God is on your side, that God will take care of you, that if God says these guys are going to be destroyed, you can trust me. Well, how can I trust you? Ask me for a sign and I'll prove it to you. That's your context. Verse 12. But Ahaz, that donkey, that stubborn donkey, doesn't want to ask for a sign. You have been invited by the Almighty to ask him to do something cool. And you have the audacity to say, oh, no, I would never ask God for a sign. I would, wouldn't you? <laughs> but I'm not King Ahaz, who doesn't want a sign from God. Ahaz doesn't want to trust God. He's already made up his mind. He's not going to trust God. He's already made up this mind. This whole meeting is just a formality. He's such a politician. This is all just a formality. I've already got my plans. I'm already drafting the letter that I'm going to send to the Pharaoh. We're going to make our alliance, and we're going to resist all this. I've got it all worked out. I'm just going to freak out until then. I've got it all planned out. I don't want to ask for a sign. I don't want to be convinced. Does it sound like most people, when you talk to them about Jesus, I don't want to be convinced. I don't want a sign. So when you read verse 12, do not read it as Ahaz being humble and being kind. And Wow, wow look at this person. He doesn't even want to tempt God. This is, it's not tempting God if you're invited by God to do it. Okay. If I say to God, I won't believe unless you give me a sign, I'm tempting God. But if God says to me, if you ask for a sign, I'll show it to you. Well, if I don't ask for it, now I'm tempting God. That's Now that's tempting God. Because he is inviting me to do something, and I'm spitting in his face, turning my nose. So that's that. Verse 13. Isaiah responds to that. Here now, he doesn't say Ahaz. Here now, who? What does he say? The whole house of David. Here now, everybody else. King doesn't want a sign. Well, I don't have to talk to the king. I can talk to everybody else. Hear now, O house of David. But he speaks here to Ahaz. Is it a small thing for you to weary men that now you're going to weary my God also? Has it become passe for you to weary men? Have you been so lousy as a king that you've grown bored with just frustrating your subjects that now you have to frustrate the almighty God? Has it become no big deal to annoy the people that now you have to annoy God? Will you weary men, but now you're going to weary God also? How is he wearying God? How is he annoying God, bothering God? Because he's been told, give me an ask for a son, and I'll give you one. And he refuses. That's why verse 14 is written the way it's written. It's not, therefore the Lord will give you a son, as we always read it when we take it out of context. It's not that. It's, therefore the Lord will give you a sign. You see, put the emphasis there. Because he says, I don't want a sign. So Isaiah says, tough cookies, the Lord's going to give you a sign. Because it's not just about you, it's about the whole nation. The Lord will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name God with us. I am going to show you that your kingdom is not going to be wiped off the face of the earth. Because your kingdom is going to produce God among men. And God among men is not going to come into this world under the occupation of the Assyrian Empire. He's not going to come in bending the knee to Nineveh. Your king is going to come in, a king of Jerusalem, 
a king of Judah, a king of Israel. You, Ahaz, the king, who are worried about Pekah and Rezin coming in and shiving you in the back in the middle of the night, you don't have to worry about that. Because you, as the king of Judah, you are in the royal seed line. That means your descendant and his descendant and his descendant, eventually, Matthew chapter 1, will produce the Messiah. So I am not going to watch, God says, my eternal plan for salvation end on the, the cowardly spaghetti spine failure of King Ahaz. I am going to protect you. I'm going to drag you across life's finish line because the royal seed line is more important than you. I am going to prove to you that I will protect you because through you will come the savior of everybody. You don't want a sign? I'll give you a sign. A virgin is going to conceive and bear a son. Does anybody's Bible say a young woman? If you read the old revised standard version, I'm pretty sure they have revised the revised standard. I don't know what they call it now, but they have since revised, revised the revised standard. And I think now they say virgin. But once upon a time, I've got a copy of it in my office. It's like as, as recently, if you want to call it recently, as the 1950s, the revised standard version. In this verse says, Behold, a young woman, or maybe even maiden, or something like that, will conceive and bear a son. And it was done that way because, for among other reasons, there were people on the translation committee who did not believe in the virgin birth, who did not believe in the miracles, in fact, and were just going by a strict literal word-for-word -word translation without any regard to the supernatural. They were trying to strip all that away from the text. And they didn't always get their way because there was a whole committee of translators. But he got his way on that one verse, and I think it's since been revised. But... For a, for a time, that Bible, which was a popular Bible, said that the prophecy of Isaiah 7.14 is just that a young girl is going to give birth to a son. But a young girl getting pregnant and having a child is not a miracle. Therefore, it's not a sign. A, a girl getting pregnant and having a baby, and I said girl, a teenager, getting pregnant and having a baby happens all the time. That's not a sign. That's not supernatural. That's not something God can point to and say, I can do that supernatural thing to prove to you I will do this thing over here, which is protect your kingdom and you yourself in particular. Just someone having a baby doesn't cut it. But a virgin, a woman who's never known a man, finding herself with child, now that's something remarkable. That's something unheard of. That's something that you can't replicate. It's a miracle. It's something supernatural. There are two words in the Hebrew that could be, could be translated as virgin. One of those words would be better translated as young woman. And one of those words means a woman who's never known a man. There is the word Alma, and there's the word Na'ara. Na'ara means a young lady. And there is the word Alma, which means a woman who's never known a man. Alma, Alma, has, uh, appears nine times in the Old Testament. Five times in the singular, four times in the no, five times in the plural, four times in the singular. Look at two very in particular uses of the word. All right, verse six, uh, Genesis chapter twenty-four, verse sixteen. Genesis twenty-four, sixteen. And the damsel, the young lady, was very fair to look upon, a virgin who had not known a man. And she went down to the well, lifted her pitcher, and came up. That word is defined in the context. That word defined in the context. Alma meaning a woman has never known a man. In Genesis 24, 43, Behold, I stand by the will of water, and it shall come to pass that when the virgin comes forth to draw water, God will say, Give me a water, and I'll drink of it. Same word, context defined. Now we know who we're talking about. Not just any young woman. Yes, ma'am. Uh, 
Can't you, but wasn't it confirmed by the angel talking to Joseph and explaining to him that your wife will conceive? Yes, and so, that's exactly right. Right. So mm -hmm. even if there was a young woman, you know she was a virgin. Yes, I mean, she certainly was because a young woman, too. Right, yeah. But you're right, yeah. When you get to Matthew chapter 1's account, Matthew, who speaks Greek, or had, he speaks Hebrew, but wrote it in Greek, used the word parthenos, which in the Greek just only ever could possibly mean a woman who's never known a man. There's a totally different word, I don't remember what it is, that means a young lady. But there is none of the even potential ambiguity or obscurity the way there could possibly be in the Hebrew, even though, even within the Hebrew usage of the word, the context always defines it, okay? If you just rip verses or words out of the context and say, well, it could mean young woman, and then take that possibility and slap it onto chapter 714, which is what the Revised Standard people did, you, you ruin context, you ruin translating, and you ruin the meaning of the word. But set that aside, it could be, could be, could be, all right? But as was just said, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, Parthenos, in the Greek, a virgin. This is Matthew, the angel Gabriel, Matthew writing, quoting from Isaiah. So Gabriel the angel, you would think an authority on divine things. Ga angel the Gabri Gabriel the angel says, you are going to, um, you know, be the, the surrogate father of the Messiah, blah, blah, blah. Because Isaiah says um, that a virgin will conceive and bear a son. And he uses the word parthenos, which means a woman who's never known a man. So the only way you would have to reject that is to completely reject all the New Testament. And if you're going to do that, why are we even arguing about that word? You've got bigger problems than if you're rejecting 27 books of canon. So there's no point arguing it. The word is, the word is virgin. Behold, a woman who's never known a man miraculously will conceive and bear a son. And when that child is born, they will call his name Jesus. That's not what he says. They'll call his name what? Emmanuel. Right, because Emmanuel is not a name like my name is Matthew or something. <laughs> Emmanuel is a descriptor. They will call his name. They will refer to him as. They will talk about him as Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. So, you don't need to worry about this kingdom being destroyed because God is coming down to be in this kingdom, right? It's going to be okay. You don't need to worry about you being killed because your seed line will produce the one who is coming. And he will come through this miraculous means. Now, that is God's promise. What's crazy, maybe that's not the right word for it, what's remarkable about it is God's promise to Ahaz to prove to him that he is going to keep his word and not let his kingdom be destroyed is not... I'm going to turn the sky purple for 10 seconds, or I'm going to make mushrooms grow from your ears, or something like that. It's not something that's immediate and obvious in the moment. It's something that won't come to fruition for 700 years. But God just doesn't think temporarily the way we do. In the mind of God, I could predict something in 700 years, and I could say, that's going to happen. So you got to trust me now. So it's, God is not going to make the windshield wipers do this. I don't care what your reruns show you. Okay, That's not how it works. God's mind works differently than that. God's perspective is different than that. It's this prophecy that you're in the seed line and you're going to produce the Messiah. It's, it's nothing more than a reminder. Something he should have already known because he should have already read Samuel and Genesis and so forth to know what his royal messianic place is in the story. Um, and so that is just a reminder and a promise that, hey, if that's going to happen, then you can't be destroyed. It's going to be okay. Now, it gets tricky when you get to verse 15. Because my Bible, and probably yours too, says, Butter and honey shall he eat. Dun, dun, dun. Is that what yours says? Yes, yeah, he shall eat curds and yeah. honey. Curds and honey, which is a better translation. But still, the fact that he'll eat curds and honey. He, despite how pronouns are supposed to work, he is not referring to the last proper noun, which is Emmanuel. 
He is not Jesus. He is not the Christ to come. He is Sheer Jashub. And you'll see that as you go through the rest of the text and into chapter 8. So you have to just take my word for it because it'll, it'll make sense as we go through the rest of the text. But I have to say it now so you won't get the wrong impression as we're going through it and then just be lost in like five verses. He, he, if you imagine I'm Isaiah and that stand is King Ahaz, and I'm saying God will give you a sign, the virgin will conceive and bear a son that calls him Emmanuel. And he will eat curds and honey before all this takes place. Before he grows up to know good and evil, bad things are going to happen. That's, that's what's going on here. It's just Isaiah and no Bible book is written, I guess except maybe like Acts and 1 Samuel, is written like this where you get the kind of the narrator description. And then Isaiah turned to his son and pointed and said, you don't get that. You just get the words. And so in, in the, just the words, you're reading this pronoun, and you assume grammatically, well, the pronoun he should refer to the most previous recent male reference, which is to the virgin's child. So Jesus will eat curds and honey. But as you go through the text, it can't possibly be Jesus. Nothing in the context makes sense for that to be Jesus. The only other he that's not I, first person, or you, second person, is second person, is third person, he, the only other person available, is Sheer Jashub. Because that's who went with Isaiah to meet with the king. You follow? These two go to the king. So if it ain't me and if it ain't you, it must be he. Who is he? She or Jashem. Because it ain't Jesus. We'll see as we go through this. All right? Keep going and you'll see. Curds and honey shall he eat, so that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. He's going to suffer, but he's going to be part of the remnant. He's going to be part of the faithful people of God. He's not going to let hardship pull him away from God. For before the child, whose child? Not the virgin's child, my child. Before this boy, before this child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that you abhor, in the context, Syria and Israel, before he learns to know the difference between good and evil, the, uh, the kings that you abhor will be forsaken of their lands. The lands will be forsaken of their kings. In other words, you're worried about these two kings. Well, before this kid has even grown, before he's, he's out of diapers, you're not going to have to worry about these guys anymore. All right? That's, that's the immediate that you're going to be okay and taken care of. Verse 17. The Lord shall bring upon you and upon your people, he says to Ahaz, and upon your father's house, days that have not come, from the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, even the king of Assyria. My Bible says, um, shall bring upon you and upon your people dark nowhere. Okay, so it means you're going to experience darkness. A, a, an era that you have not experienced before. What is, um, what's the phrase? It's always, it's always, yeah, thank you. Because I didn't want to say, if I say any more, I, I it's always darkest before dawn. There's a new period coming, but there's a dark period that has to precede it. You're going to experience this dark time uh, for, from uh, before all the good stuff can take place. And then when it's over, then Ephraim will depart from Judah. The bad will leave the good. It's got to suffer first, but then good will follow. Verse 18. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall... I'm not going to try and whistle again because we had that fiasco last time. But he will whistle. The King James says hiss. He will, he will whistle. I'm not going to do that. I wouldn't dare do that again. Um, for the fly that is in the uttermost parts of the rivers of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. This is how God describes... A relatively powerful, but not as big as they once were at their peak, Egypt. And, um, yeah, that's the fly. And the bee, that is Assyria, a certainly very powerful. But he describes it as a bee. Not even a swarm, just a bee. But, you know, you don't want to get stung by a bee. But God doesn't care. He just flick it off. So, 
it's perspective is worth keeping in mind here as he says this. It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord is going to whistle for the fly that is in the uttermost parts of Egypt and for the bee that's in the land of Assyria. God is going to um, summon forth these empires against you. Verse 19, and they shall come and shall rest all of them in the desolate valleys and in the holes of the rocks and upon all the thorns and upon all the, the bushes. These enemy nations are going to come in and they're going to invade you and they're going to swarm against you, a swarm of bees and flies, if you will, like a pestilence, except these of people are going to come in and you're going to find them everywhere. They're going to be under your bed. They're going to be in the cracks of your armpits. They're going to be, you know, in your gardens. You're going to find them everywhere. What does he say here? All your desolate valleys, all the holes of the rocks, upon all the thorns and all the bushes, everywhere you look, you're going to find, you can't get rid of all the Assyrians and all the Egyptians and everybody that's coming against you. Why are they coming against me? I thought you said I was going to be okay. Yeah, you are, but your whole nation is rejecting me. Punishment must follow. Ultimately, 700 years ultimately, my Savior is going to come. And even he's not going to save the nation. He's going to save the souls. He's not going to just be a, a physical king, but a spiritual one. So yeah, physical punishment's got to come. Verse 20. In the same day shall the Lord shave with a razor him that is hired, namely by them beyond the river, uh, by the king of Assyria, the head, he's going to shave, the head and the hair of the feet, and also consume the beard. The, God describes a shaving that is coming, and you can use the phrase in a couple of different ways, metaphorical or literal. Metaphorical, the people are going to be metaphorically stripped and laid bare. Shaved, stripped, bare, totally exposed, defeated, humiliated. You can use it in that kind of poetic sense. At the same time, shave can be used literally, sliced down, cut across, trimmed and, and low and cut down to nothingness. Every blade of grass, every blooming flower, every crop, all of it will be expelled from the land. Something that's going to come up repeatedly as you go through Isaiah is this description of what the punishment God's going to level against them will do to the land, not just to the people. You will regularly, as we go through this, hear God describe it as a place of thorns and thistles and, and briar patches. It's supposed to be this land flowing with milk and honey. Well, that was providentially provided. God's going to turn off that tap. And it's going to be this dry, barren wasteland. You're going to get that a little bit here and a lot still to come. So your land's going to be shaved down, first by Assyria and then ultimately by Babylon. And it shall come to pass in that day, verse 21, that a man shall nourish a young cow and two sheep. So the entire economy of Jude is going to be ruined. This is only half a sentence. A man will come and to nourish a young cow and two sheep, verse 22, and it shall come to pass for the abundance of milk that they shall give he shall eat, my Bible says butter, but I bet yours says curds. Yeah. And for curds and honey shall everyone eat that is left in the land. Someone's going to come in looking to provide for his animals. He's not going to find any means to provide for his livestock. Travelers are going to come through thinking, we better take the long way around. I don't want to settle here even for a night. I don't want to stay in this part of town. This whole area is desolate because God has made the land desolate. He stripped it down. And so you're going to be eating nothing but curds and honey. And someone's going to say, well, at least we get honey. Honey's nice, right? So when God said, here's this beautiful land flowing with milk and honey, you got to think of that like this. Here is this amazing cake with icing on top. But if there is no cake, if it's just icing, it's, if it's just the cherry on top, if it's just the steak sauce and there's no meat there, what even is this? So you're going to have honey, sure, but that's all that's left. It's not this land flowing with milk and honey. It's a, it's a land of curds and just smatterings of honey left over. It's been, it's been stripped down. Assyria, bee, honey, not a coincidence, I don't think. 
going to come in and leave it desolate. So there's just nothing left but just a few little sprigs. There used to be a honey fountain there. There used to be a, a waterfall of milk there. This land of God that he provided for us now just gone is the point. 23. And it shall come to pass in that day that every place shall be where once there were a thousand vines and a thousand silverlings, it shall even be for briars and thorns. My Bible says a thousand vines, a thousand silverlings. What does your Bible say? Shekels. The Hebrew monetary unit. So, look, you have all these vines worth all this money. But now, once I'm done with you, once you're punished properly, all those vines worth all that money, it's just briars and thorns and barren and worthless. Verse 24. With arrows and with bows shall men come thither. Because all the land shall become briars and thorns. Men with bows and uh, arrows, hunters, scavengers, people passing through the land. Not soldiers in this case. Though they would use those too. But people just passing through the land are going to come in and they're going to find nothing to hunt. They're not going to find livestock. They're not going to find free roaming whatever is to the livestock there. I almost want to say lions, but you know, no one's hunting a lion. Whatever is the deer. Let's just use the modern equivalent, our equivalent. They're not going to find deer there. They're not going to find squirrel or quail or anything like that. The person might hunt today. I've heard I don't hunt. I just eat it. You're not going to find any of that there. The hunter's going to come in, and they're going to go, go away. They're going to leave because they don't, they don't want to settle and try and hunt in a barren wasteland. Imagine if the majestic purple mountains of America you know, and the, the fruited fields of grain are replaced with just cindering, smoking husks and just barren, stripped-down fields. Now, if that's the prophecy, how would you feel? It's really easy to read this and think, well, good thing I don't live in Judah. No, but you live in America. We're not exactly much better, spiritually speaking. And I know God doesn't operate the same way because he had a specific purpose for protecting and punishing and bringing back Judah and so forth and bringing across the Messiah. I get all that. But God is still in the business of raising and toppling kingdoms, empires, nations, as he wills. That's Daniel chapter 4. We talked about all that when we covered Daniel. That's, that's still his modus operandi. So if this is a nation, let's just say America, that's really wicked and thumbing our noses at God and just asking for it, asking for punishment, we ought not be surprised when punishment comes. And I bet there's a lot of people who are, because there's a lot of people who somehow believe that America is God's nation. And we for sure are not. In fact, I'd go as far as to say we ain't. All right? Verse 25. And on all hills that shall be digged with the mattock, that's um, like a garden hoe kind of thing. Is that what your Bible says? Something like that? Yeah, hoe with a hoe. So we dig with the mattock. There shall not come thither. the uh, Nothing's going to come up. You, you plant, you, you garden, vegetate, but nothing's going to come up because no one even want to plant because of the fear of briars and thorns. <laughs> Instead, it shall be a sending forth of oxen for the treading of lesser cattle. It's a worthless, completely ruined land. Is that the end of the chapter? They never, they never rang the bell. I was sitting there wondering, where's my bell? Any comments or questions? <laughs> He's waiting down again, y'all. Any comments or questions from anybody? I heard the bell ring twice, so this counts. You're out. Okay, chapter 8, this time next week. Thank you.